Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet to the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Howdy, my good friends, and welcome back. Thank you again for stopping by. Appreciate you listening. As we already know, there are many places in the Appalachian Mountains that have their own tales to tell. Virtually every town along the range from the top of the highest peak to the rolling foothills has a good story. That's because there's always been something or somebody coming out of the woodwork that'll make you think twice about <clears throat> what it is that you just saw coming out of the woodwork, or maybe you know exactly what or who it is, just can't believe what it is that came out, or actually what in the heck they just did. Some of the most unbelievable stories to be told came right out of the out of a our own Appalachian Mountains right here. Among the most highly regarded of Appalachian values is self-reliance. Take away our paycheck, give us a gun and a stretch of land, and we'll embrace the opportunity to show you how it's done. Living off the grid with just our wits and wisdom to guide us is a pioneer spirit we all here in the mountains share. Few things are as fulfilling as uh, to take a good mess of squirrel and make them up into some gravy. Come on in, have yourself a seat, and let me tell you a tale about what literally walked right out of the mountains almost 30 years to the day after it walked in. Now, the state of Maine is the easternmost state in the United States. Not the whole state, but because of the West Quaddy Head Lighthouse, which holds the distinction of being the easternmost part of the United States. Rome, which is a town that sits in Kennebec County, is, was first settled about 1780 by Richard Furbish. The town is later incorporated in 1804 and named after Rome in Italy. Even though farmers found the ground broken and uneven, the hills and valleys offered excellent grazing for livestock. By 1839, when the population was 1,074, it was described as a beautiful farming town with a pleasant and flourishing village with big ponds chock full of trout, perch, pickerel, and 
and it remains relatively unchanged to this day. Folks, it's just a beautiful place. Christopher Thomas Knight was born December 7, 1965, about 40 minutes west of Rome in a town called Albion, which is, was just a little bigger than Rome, as a matter of fact. According to people who knew him, he spent his school years not doing anything that would create any kind of trouble. They claimed he was a very smart kid, yet unremarkable young man. He just seemed to fly under the radar. He didn't have many friends and didn't seem to really want any. But he didn't have any enemies either. And nobody noticed any odd behavior that could signify any harmful mental condition with Chris. He said, uh, I had good parents and we're not emotionally bleeding all over each other. And we're just not to touchy-feely tight. His father had taught him to fix what was broken and build what was needed. The knights grew their own food and gathered their own water. They hunted and fished. They didn't waste a thing. They were an intensely private family. After 14 years of living there, most of their neighbors barely knew or spoke to any of them. At home, they used very few words, even to each other. At night, they sat around reading, each of them immersed in their own little world. They were a family of five, so when Christopher Knight went missing at the age of 20 in 1986, his family never bothered to contact the police. They figured he went off on an adventure somewhere, and they figured, well, he, he could take care of himself pretty well, and it turns out they were right. Maybe it was the death of his father or loss of his cousin that caused him to just up and leave. North Pond is located in central Maine. Technically, it's in the town of Rome, but it's actually in a rural area. It's part of the Belgrade Lakes region, a favorite of summer vacationers who came back every year to relax in the woods by the waterside for a few weeks with about 300 cabins are scattered around North Pond and its smaller offshoot, North, Little North Pond. Chris had walked into the area and built a hut on a slope in the woods. He faced his tent in a direction at which he could best utilize the sunlight at all hours in the, of the day in order to keep as warm as possible. He concealed his camp by covering any bright and shiny objects in dark colored tarp and bags as well as a moss, just like his late father had taught him. He never lit a fire either for the sole purpose of hiding himself. The methods he used to hide his camp were like military tactics, although it was never in, he was never in the military. Despite the primitive look of his camp, Chris strategically masked his location on the mountain where he had chosen to make his new way of life. He spent his days reading books and meditating. He also watched plants grow. By 1986, break-ins started happening in the area and continued for more than 25 years. At first, they were quite a disturbing violation of the owner's personal space, something to be countered with violence if necessary. But as time went by, they became seen as more of a nuisance, like an animal caught in the walls or something. It wasn't just a numbing frequency of the break-ins, that turned the dial from fear to complacency, it was the things that were being stolen. A spatula, a pillow, a case of beer, a frying pan, a garden hose, men's underwear, which was always size 32, by the way, 
What the thief didn't take were expensive cameras, computers, stereos, jewelry. Uh, whoever was doing this had particular needs that didn't involve the kind of valuables that could be sold for cash. And he wasn't running away either. Year after year, the break-ins just kept happening. Propane tanks and batteries were the constant commodity for the perpetrator, whoever he was. He was obviously replenishing his supplies. It's hard to say when it first became apparent that somebody was living out there in the woods, surviving off of what he took from the cabins, but it was somebody living alone and apart from everybody else. You might say he was a hermit. The classic hermit of old is somebody who practices abstention and self-denial, often for enlightenment. He is a common figure in most of the world's religions and is legendary among Appalachians. But his, this hermit is a bit different. He had a weakness for candy and beer. He liked reading. He listened to music. He stole paperback books and CDs. He had a preference for Dostoev and, well, above all, Leonard Skinner, judging by what he took and he, what he left behind. Apparently, he relaxed in comfort. One day, a cabin owner near a, of a home came home to find a mattress missing. It was a mystery how the hermit had gotten it through the, the window. The front door was padlocked, and a closer investigation revealed that he had crawled through the window, taken the front door off the hinges, took the mattress right out the front door, then put the door back on the hinges and crawled back out through the window. He was nothing if not thorough, and he was at, took pains to leave everything as he found it. He didn't want to make a mess. He just wanted what he needed. The folks, this went on for year after year, an average of 40 times a year. Residents became so accustomed to him, they began leaving things out for him with notes attached. Please don't break in. Tell us what you want, and we'll leave it out for you. Of course, there was no reply, and the break-ins kept going. By then, a legend had been born in the North Pond area, a legend that most laughingly referred to as the North Pond Hermit. A hermit who takes just what the necessities of life. Of course, those outsiders to the area were most amused by the lore of the North Pond Hermit, and they laughed at the loudest at the tale until well, they came back to their camp to find something missing. He was driving the cops nuts. They couldn't catch him. They couldn't even find him. A thorough search of the woods turned up squat. Foot searches, flyovers, fingerprint dusting, all yielded absolutely nothing. They had no idea who he was. They had no idea where he was or either. They had no idea about anything of it. The Pine Tree Camp, a camp for people with special needs, was burglarized several times until finally camp leaders asked authorities to investigate. Sergeant Terry Hughes had the idea to set up a camera with a tripwire alarm system that would notify him at home if anything got into the Pine Tree Camp dining facility to steal food at night after it was closed. Late one night, after the alarm system was assembled that day, the hermit hit the tripwire. Sergeant Hughes heard the signal and then saw him on camera. He rushed over to the camp and nabbed the hermit. Chris Knight was found. Not all messed up and dirty, of course. 
like the television films always portray men who live alone in the wild, but he had a bit of a beard but short hair. He was also still wearing his 1980s-style glasses. Sergeant Hughes was the first person Chris spoke to since the 1990s when he walked past somebody on a path and greeted him by simply saying hi. It was now April 13, 2013. When Christopher Knight led police to his hidden camp in 2013, they were astonished by what they saw. By overlaying plastic tarps and garbage bags like roof shingles, he had constructed an A-frame structure 10 feet high and 12 feet long. Inside was a Coleman two-burner camp stove attached to an outside propane tank by a garden hose. Cooking utensils hung from ropes against the walls. A large plastic storage container served as his pantry. His kitchen was better equipped than many houses were. His bedroom was even better. The floor was constructed of magazines bound into thick bundles with electrical taping fitted together to form a level platform over which he could spread a soft carpet. His bed was a mattress and box spring on a standard metal bed frame. He had fitted sheets, he had fluffed pillows, he had nightstand that was stacked high with books. He had flashlights, he even had a radio and earbuds. The whole place was surprisingly clean. Outside was a wash-up area, a flat-topped rock on a on which he would beat his clothes when he washed them. He collected water in a 30-gallon plastic garbage cans. He showered regularly by pouring water over his head. He shaved every day. He used deodorant. On the camp's border, he had fashioned a latrine. He kept toilet paper and hand sanitizer nearby. He liked to keep clean. He didn't like a mess. Only after he was taken into custody did he begin to grow a little bit of a beard. The one thing that was missing from the camp, the one thing conspicuous by its absence, was a fire pit. Christopher Knight never built a fire. He was too risky. It would have given him away. He was simply too close to other people. His campsite was a mere three-minute walk from the nearest cabin. At night, he could hear the crunch of auto tires against the nearby gravel road and the muffled sounds of neighbors' distant voices. In summer, he could hear the plop and whirr of people fishing in the pond. He knew where they were, but they never saw him or knew where he was. He was a phantom. He stayed hidden for 27 years. The site was shielded by two enormous boulders left half buried in the ground by the last, last, last ice age. He looked straight onto the for they appeared to be one giant stone if you just looked at them. But seeing at a certain angle, they were clearly two of them, with a gap in between. A gap somebody could squeeze through by turning sideways. Seems too large for a gap for to be pushed over the top. But uh, the woods around the campsite were thick with ferns and hemlocks. The branches knitted overhead to form a canopy. The place was completely concealed but it was a treacherous place nonetheless. So nobody ever went up there and messed around to look. They didn't think anybody could even get in there. But the most remarkable thing about Christopher Knight's quarter-century escape into the woods of central Maine is that he never got sick, never got injured, nor never had to go to the hospital. The area is eat up with poison ivy and infested with ticks. In winter, it gets brutally cold 
especially for somebody who refuses to build a fire. Chris never got frostbite, never got a rash, never got Lyme disease, and never even got a cold. Isn't that something? It turns out that being alone and isolated from other human beings is one of the best ways to keep your health. But what about Chris Knight's mental health? Surely there must have been something wrong with him do something like that. Who in the world would be content to live alone and isolated, fighting the elements to survive when the comforts of civilization lie just a few yards away? In all those years of break-ins, he never once stopped to take a hot shower nor catch a few winks under a solid roof, even though the cabin's owners were often away for months. He at least was true to himself in that regard, I guess. Uh, After his arrest, he was surprisingly forthcoming. He answered every question truthfully. He knew the break-ins were wrong, and he regretted doing them. He had no political statement, no chest beating. He was ashamed. All he wanted in life was to just simply be left the heck alone. In the end, they didn't throw the book at him. Most thought of him as a folk hero who wasn't really hurting anybody. There was an innocence in his banner that argued against the long-term incarceration. He spent a total of seven months behind bars. All but a week of that was waiting on trial, and he was fined $2,000. But his real punishment came, uh, I guess, when he had to go back into the real world to live with others, to share the burdens of his own existence. Being from the mountains myself, I have to say one thing, though. I don't condone the criminal activities involved here, but this old boy did pretty good at staying off the grid, don't you think? Hope you enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to subscribe or follow, depending on where you listen. Please join us on Facebook group at Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast where we can discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else you want to talk about. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian murder mystery or legend, and I will see you then.